You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. And welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, advocates, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Last week, I had the great opportunity to lead a group of teachers on a field trip to the Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuary as day two of a professional development workshop. And we were really lucky to enjoy the islands. The birds are out there right now. Lots of birds and breeding plumage, very busy on the water, lots of fish in their bills. It was just a really exciting time to be out at the islands. And we're also treated to seeing four blue whales. So the water is hopping right now. Um, All of this is the east of the islands, and we were really treated to seeing swarms of krill on the surface as well. So I'm imagining perhaps the whales were either feeding or checking it out to feed. It was really pretty awesome. We have talked a bit about whales on the show in the past, uh, most recently talking about the issue of large ships hitting whales. The shipping lanes have been adjusted, and those have been taking into account what we do know about where whales typically feed. And just today, actually, a new application for smartphones, a new app has come out to encourage boaters to document where they're seeing whales. So researchers can determine when and where endangered species are. If they are in shipping lanes, they can send a notice out to mariners to be sent out. So, so there's some good progress to date. However, since whaling ended, humpback whales have rebounded in numbers, but blue whales have not in the same way. And there is thought that it could be perhaps due to the increased shipping traffic and perhaps they are more vulnerable to ship strikes. Researchers predict that for every whale that washes ashore that it is that is a confirmed ship strike that there are many, many more whales hit out at sea that are not documented by us. So this brings into question what happens to a whale when it dies, either from natural causes or from a ship strike. Well, some do wash ashore and provide a specimen for marine biologists to learn from. Whales are difficult to research in general. A whole lot of data about whale physiology, disease, age, gender can be gained by doing necropsy on the animal at the beach. But most animals actually end up in their own habitat in the ocean and eventually sink to the seafloor. And so this makes for a very interesting lesson in decomposition. Everything that is alive dies, and an animal of such large proportion provides an interesting opportunity for study. So my guest today works at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, also known as MBARI, and is participating in studies surrounding these unique communities. Shannon Johnson is a research technician at MBARI and works on genetics and phylogenetics on deep sea species. She earned her master's in marine science from Moss Landing Marine Lab and is live on the phone with me today. Shannon, welcome. You're live on KWMR. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. 
So I imagine on a hot day today, studying a dead whale on the beach might not be quite as comfortable as studying a dead whale from the comfort of a ship through a remotely operated vehicle. What do you, what do you think? <laughs> well, they never smell good. Even we, we actually, um, when, we're, when we're working on them in the ocean, we actually do peck up pieces of bone so that we can work on the animals that live on them. Um, and they stink really bad there, too. So oh, okay. we're kind of notorious for our bad smell in our lab. <laughs> it kind of goes along with the territory. So tell us, how did you get into this area of study? Um, well, it was kind of an opportunistic um, endeavor. We, our group was out in 2002. Our group was out working on a cold seep, and cold seeps are a reducing environment as well. It's kind of a slow leaking of nutrients out of the seafloor. It can be like a kelp raft that gets buried and then is slowly rotting, and, um, it, and that feeds a chemosynthetic community. So we were out looking for this big, and, and typically, especially in the Monterey Bay, we have a lot of clams that live at seeps, and they're really cool. They're really big, big, beautiful clams. So we were out looking for these clams in about 3,000 meters of water in the Monterey Canyon, and on the way to the clam bed, we were exploring the area, um, we came across this big skeleton of a whale, and it was so cool because watching the video, you just watch this big, white, beautiful, dead whale emerge in the darkness, and um, on the bones of the whale were these flowing red things. And, you know, at first glance, you didn't quite see them, but as you got closer and you took a closer look at the whale, you saw these. It's that it was covered in this almost like um, feather boas and tiny little feather boas all over the whale. And uh, so they picked up some bones, and and that's how we started on whale fall ecology in deep sea. <laughs> in the in sea. So it's called a whale fall community, and that basically characterizes a whale that's fallen to the seafloor in general. I, yeah, and all the critters that eat it. And all the critters that eat it. Can we back up one second? You mentioned the word chemosynthetic community, and I know this is a key word that we're going to be talking about throughout the show. Can you describe what a chemosynthetic community is? This was originally you were talking about the cold seep habitat. Yeah, so and actually any reducing environment, you know, there's hydrothermal vents, there's cold seeps, even wood can um, provide some sort of chemosynthetic community. So basically what I'm talking about is back in the, up until the 70s, we thought all of the energy in the world came from the sun, from photosynthesis. And then geologists bumped into hydrothermal, or they didn't bump, they knew they were going to hydrothermal vents, but they went to hydrothermal vents in the Galapagos Islands, deep, deep in the ocean, near the Galapagos Islands. And they found vents, and they saw these giant, beautiful, four-foot-tall tube worms and huge mussels and clams and saw this amazingly diverse community of invertebrates living where there's absolutely no light at all and no apparent um, input from the sun. And so they, the geologists were, even geologists got excited about this, and it's hard to get geologists excited about <laughs> stuff that isn't rocks. <laughs> and so they brought up animals and took them to the appropriate biologists and discovered um, a whole new energy, energy source, which is chemosynthesis. So it's basically bacteria feeding off minerals that are coming out of um, the sediment or the vent or the, whir or the whale or whatever, um, and then feeding other animals. They can either live with them with the bacteria symbiotically 
in um, a specialized structure within their bodies, or they can graze it, or they can eat other animals that le- that are chemo have a chem- sorry have a symbiont. <laughs> so but- that's kind of and that kind of derives this whole community, and they're kind of like these cool islands of food because they're the deep sea is generally pretty depauperate of um, food, and so when you have these reducing environments, there's a good collection of really neat stuff living there. Yeah, it's like a little laboratory in itself. Yeah. So you came to this whale and you took one sep- specimen or probably a few more than that. And what were some of the questions that came to mind for the research team about the community in general and what those worms were? Well, yeah, so the first collections, they called them green snot worms. And so Luckily, our group had already been, we're, we work on genetics of um, these animals that live in these in reducing environments, and, and in the ocean, doing population genetics especially is kind of tricky because, you know, there aren't so many boundaries in the ocean as there are on, in, on the land, right? There's mountains and rivers and things that could separate things and cause some genetic distinction, but in the ocean, you've, you've, it's more well-mixed than in terrestrial environments, and so my group typically has focused on these reducing environments because they're kind of like little islands full of animals. And so they already worked on, we already worked on um, hydrothermal vent worms. And so they, when they picked up the bone and they saw that these white or these red, fuzzy, beautiful, flowing feather boa looking worms all over it, they thought, oh, these look a lot like the hydrothermal vent worms. Riftia, where Riftia pachyptula are these big, tall can be a meter tall worm that has, they're very simple. They have a plume for gas exchange and their plumes are quite lovely. They really do look like a big (laughs) red feather boa. Um, They have a trunk and then they have a specialized structure inside of them called a trophosome where they house their bacteria. And they don't have a mouth, they don't have a gut, nothing else. They're very simple. And these worms that were all over the bones of the whale look just like that. But what was interesting was there was not much flesh left at all. There was a little bit of guts left, but these worms were very obviously living on the bones, not off of the tissue that had been there. And so what was neat about the worms is they kind of had this root structure. They were almost like plants, and they extended down into the bones. One thing that's really great about our lab is we have fabulous collaborators and so knowing that we do the genetics and not the morphology or the taxonomy, we called our friend Greg Rouse, and at the time he was at the South Australian Museum, and he's like the world's expert on worms. If you need to know about a worm, <laughs> you call Greg. <laughs> and so we sent him some samples, and he did the morphological description, and Shauna Gaffredi, um did all the genetics, and they identified the symbionts, the bacteria that feed the worms. And all those people together described the the worms, and they called them osidax or bone eater. And this is a new species, right? A new genus and a new species, and really a new energy source. I think there's some birds, some lammergeers that eat bone, and some wild dogs in Africa that eat bone, but not just as kind of bycatch. There aren't any other animals that I know of that <laughs> diet is primarily composed of just bone. That's amazing. So yeah. coming back, coming back, I'm just thinking that that's probably a very late stage in the decomposition of the whale. And what are the stages early on that 
in terms of decomposition? I know that some seabirds pick at dead whale once it's if it's on the surface, but then it starts floating to the seafloor. And what are some of the early stages of decomposition? What animals are attracted to a prey source like that on the seafloor? Well, that's a great question. And we didn't know because this was just, we didn't, this wasn't our field. This wasn't our deal. There are people who study, who have been working on whale falls for a long time. And so, and they have mapped out specific stages of these whale falls. So there's this first scavenger stage, like you said, the birds come and the sharks, and then they got to get the whale to sink. And we learned a lot more about this as, you know, this, this whale we found was pretty advanced in its um, decomposition, and it decomposed very quickly. We went out a few months after we first initially found it, and the pelvic girdle was completely gone. Like It was like it had been melted into the bottom of the ocean already. That's and it, that was just a few months. And this was a very exciting discovery. New genus and new species of totally new weird worms. We And we knew we had a lot of work to do to even begin to understand how these guys are doing this. So we started sinking whales. And so that's one thing about living in the Monterey Bay and along lots of shipping channels. And also, we get, we, I think we have more casualties due to orcas. They will separate moms and baby whales and rip the jaws off the baby whales and eat their tongues, which is a kind of a horrible, sad thing to watch. I'm glad I haven't had to see it, but I've definitely seen the results of it. You get these little juvenile whales washing up on the beaches with no lower jaws and no tongues. Mm. But so we would take these whales back out. We would ventilate them. <laughs> Use your imagination how we do that. <laughs> and um, drag them back out to sea and then sink them. And we've sunk them at a bunch of different depths. And so we've gotten to actually see the successional stages. So there's this scavenger stage, mobile scavenger stage, where um, all kinds of cool stuff comes in, like big crabs and sharks. We've seen a six-scale shark feeding on the whale carcass and uh, lots of hagfish, really disgusting, squirmy, thousands and thousands of hagfish. And these really are, I mean, I like study worms and really like snails and stuff, and hagfish gross me out. <laughs> <laughs> They're gross, gross animals. <clears throat> and in, the, in a good way, but gross. And uh, so how, then, how long is that mobile, mobile scavenger stage? You were mentioning earlier that it happens so fast. Is this like a couple months? Is this a year? Months at the most. Wow. I'm thinking all the flesh is gone from the whale within the first month. It goes fast, and it's an amazing amount of tissue that's there, too. So we've had the next stage is this, colon, and this bacterial mat seems to form is the next stage for us. And that this differs in different places, and this is not what the groups that have seen um, have been working on whale falls for a long time is typically seen. So we were really surprised at the how fast this whole process went. So a few months, all the tissue's gone, and there's still some hagfish. There's always hagfish around looking for for lunch. <laughs> um, but then we get this like big dense bacterial mat form within the first few months, and then the ocidacs, the boneworms, come in and colonize the carcass. And then what is public, what has um, typically been seen in other whale falls is it kind of they if the ocidacs are not there the the whale carcass goes into this reef stage and it can and they used to estimate that these reef stages could last fifty to a hundred years and that's not at all what we've seen and we've all, and we relabeled the ocidacs as almost a 
keystone species because it degrades the carcass so quickly and so much. It actually drives the ecology of the community because it actually disappears the skeleton so quickly. That's amazing. So in some other areas of the world's ocean, there's a reef stage and there's no worms that decompose the bone? Yeah. And so, well, and a lot of the work has been done on other whale falls in Santa Cruz and Santa Monica Basin, Santa Monica Basin, um, down south off, you know, in Santa Monica Bay. And um, it's a pretty low oxygen. And we actually um, just had a cruise earlier this year down there where we got to, it was kind of neat because we got to go see a whale that our colleagues had sunk at Scripps. And then we got, and that was off San Diego. And then a couple days later, we went, our other colleagues that were on the leg before us bumped into a whale skeleton. And this doesn't happen very often at all. It's happened two or three times for us now. But <laughs> we spent a lot of time looking at the bottom of the ocean, and we've, we've tried to use um, all kinds of different tools to image the bottom of the ocean to look for whale falls, and it is not easy. Hmm. The best way to find them is to put them there and know where you put them. Got it. But um, they very opportunistically bumped into another whale fall, but it was in a, it, the oxygen levels were so low um, the typical ways we use measure oxygen are an optode and a couple different instruments on the ROV. And they were, it was so low the instruments couldn't really, it, they, it was all over the place. The instruments weren't able to measure it. But the group before us were there with much more fine-scale instruments, and so they were able to say that, yes, the oxygen's there but incredibly low, and there were no worms, which was interesting. So it seems like a low-oxygen system too low of oxygen and they won't colonize. And so a lot of the work has been done in that same basin on whale falls. And so a reef stage lasting 50 to 100, 50 to 100 years is, seems pretty conceivable just because, you know, if there's not a lot to eat it, then it's going to last. Wow. Wow. For folks tuning in, you're listening to Ocean Currents. And my guest today is Shannon Johnson, a research technician specialist with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. And we're talking about the very interesting whale fall community on the seafloor. And it's just, it's a fascinating thing to me because I know things die. And one of the things we talk about a lot around here is upwelling and how the nutrients on the seafloor are brought up to the surface to help fertilize the phytoplankton. And this is just another source of nutrients, but it also is a wonderful example of how nature recycles itself. And, okay, the whale has died, but there are so many critters that are benefiting from that input of food to the seafloor. So it's just a really interesting ecological story that we don't really think about much. So it really caught my attention, and I wanted to learn more about it. So we're thrilled to have Shannon on today. I want to also think about, since these whale falls are pretty random, I mean completely random, some of them are human-induced by ship strikes, some of them are just natural causes, and these species on the seafloor are spread out all over the place as well, and about how many of these species are really just waiting for a, wh- a whale fall to come down, and then how do they find it? Oh, very good question. So the best we can tell, the cool thing about the Ossidax is, you know, ship Thinking a whale is super expensive. It's like you got to spend a whole day of ship time, and ship time is not cheap. And so we started experimenting with other kinds of bones, stuff that we could get more affordably, like cow bones and pig bones, and we have some elephant seal bones out there. And it turns out the Osidacs will colonize any bone. 
even turtles and fish and like the only thing we haven't gotten them to colonize is shark cartilage and that's just because it disappears too quickly. Mm-hmm. They they'll live on any bone. Not too long ago, before humans were really killing everything, there were a lot more whales on the scene. And so this didn't used to be such a risky life history strategy. There were more big things swimming around in the ocean. And there are quite a few species of Ossidax. We're up to 20 species of Ossidax in the Monterey Bay alone. And they've been found all over the world now. Now that people know what to look for and where to look, people are sinking whales everywhere, and they're finding them everywhere. And at all depths, too. There's shallow water species Ossidax. There's deep. And there's Antarctic Ossidax. It's really cool. <laughs> um, so what we think happens is they they have a typical polychaete larvae, which is just a little worm larvae called a trochophore, and they're very fecund. We have really cool video of these guys. We'll pick up a bone, and, you know, a lot of invertebrates, the minute you start poking at them and disturbing them, they'll spawn because they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. And so they it's kind of their last little clutch for continuing their species and so we'll pick up the bone from these guys and we'll hold it right up to our cameras and video them and they'll spawn and you can actually see them spawning on the video and so we think that they spawn their little they broadcast spawn their larvae out into the water column and and we just think that there's a ton of them and they i think that there's some sort of settlement cue with the bacterial mat oh Um, interesting yeah, so there's some other polychaetes that do this that will settle upon, upon getting a cue from either parents or, you know, their reef or whatever. And so they seem to, and how what we think happens, I haven't even told you the coolest thing about these worms. All the big worms we find are female. And, and there's this, we looked and looked and looked, and Greg looked and looked and looked, when I say we, Greg, <laughs> the guy who actually looks at them, not just tubes of DNA, um, and every worm he looked at was female. And he could tell they were female because they all had eggs. And no evidence of sperm storage or hermaphrodite. Herm- I can never say this word. Her- they were not hermaphrodites. So finally, upon very close examination of their tubes, he found tiny little what looked like larvae in their tubes, but they had sperm. And so the males, all the females, have harems of dwarf males living in their tubes. That is crazy. Pretty good. And uh, the the best thing about these worms is the bigger they are and the older they are, the more males they get. So this is definitely our our women have won this story. Amazing. That's such an amazing (laughs) life history strategy in terms of reproduction. And do other species do anything similar to that? There are. There are some other species with dwarf males. There's um, a worm called Bonilia, and they have little dwarf males. And the females actually produce a masculinizing hormone that masculinizes the larvae and turn them into males. And we think something like that must go on with the Ossidax because we can actually see them um, acquiring males. And so we had it. We, we were curious about the males we wanted to know are they their sons are the males brothers because they i mean females can have several hundred males in their tube and um the males don't live off the females they um aren't parasites they just use up their yolk reserves from being larvae and produce sperm and then when they're empty they just turn into these little ghosts you can find them and so we did the genetics to make sure that they weren't brothers or her sons or anything, and it's a random draw of the population. 
And so what we think happens is the first cloud of larvae that finds the whale that gets settlement gets to settle out based on maybe some sort of back cue from the bacterial map, because we don't see settlement until we get the bacterial map. We think those guys get to be female. So the first first come get to be female. They settle and they start growing and they start accumulating males and then they start spawning. Someone's got to do a science fiction film on these worms. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> get Pixar on that. <laughs> That's exciting. So so interesting. And the the worm feeds on the whalebone. It basically you said it shoots down these roots into the bone. And I mean that must be challenging itself. It's this invertebrate. It's so small and thin. And these I'm imagining whale bones to be really dense. How do they, they penetrate are. that bone? Yeah, great question. They're awful. So when the certain species of osidax, you dissect the bone, and the bone is like mush around them. Other species, they kind of bore this hole in, and you can't get in. I mean, I've broken so many forceps trying to dissect these guys out. It takes forever, and we see that species, and we're like, we all kind of have a collective groan, like, oh, no, not osidax rosius. <laughs> it's just so hard to dissect. So, um, But then, like, osidax frank presi has these big, fat, juicy roots, and it, the bone is like snot when you get... So Greg Rouse and um, another researcher at Scripps whose name I can't think of, and Sigrid Katz just published a paper um, about how they're invading this bone. And the worms actually produce acid to er erode the bone. It's so cool. They actually turn themselves into a proton pump and create acid so that they can get down into the bone. Amazing. Really cool animal. Yeah, uh, and and the more the worms, the snottier the bone. So, so it happens, and I imagine this happens rather fast, it sounds like. Pretty quickly, yeah. And, I mean, like I said, different species do different, have different root structures and, and have different um, methods of doing it. But, I mean, it's, it's really cool. Like, when you get the right species, it's so easy to dissect them out, and we get these beautiful specimens. So when the whale bone is completely de decomposed, you said that they just kind of fall apart to mush, and it just turns into little bits and pieces, perhaps on the seafloor, barely resembling a skeleton anymore. What happens to the osidax worm? Well, luckily they're, they are fecund, and they live to reproduce, and they, hopefully they move on to find another whale. And so we've sunk five or six whales in the Monterey Bay at, from 300 meters down to 1,800 meters deep. And we've found 20 species. We started out with two species at our deepest whale at the opportunistic one, and now we're up to 20. And on the cruise we just went on um, in Southern California, um, we found many of the same species that we already have. And, in fact, it was funny for a while. My boss was like, don't find any more species. <laughs> Every time we would go to sea, I'd find a new species, and I'd go running down the hall to his office and like, there's another one. And he's like, no, <laughs> we have so many to describe. That's amazing, because then you have to go through the whole process, right, of getting the species recognized and named. Yes. Yeah, and well, so far we've only done three, so we have a lot of work to do. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so this whole whale fall community, it's really all about the worms. It is, but a cool later stage of what we found is we found a bone-eating snail. And like you said, the osidax break up the bones into these little bits, and we found a new genus and two new species of actual bone-eating snails, and we called them Ruby Spira osteovora, 
and one of them is one of them is Ruby Spira Ostiavora, and the other one is Ruby Spira Gaffredier, after Shauna Gaffredi, who's a good friend and just also one of the main researchers on all this work. But these guys are really interesting because they actually physically grind down the bone. Ostiavora is kind of a big snail, and there these snails. There's tons and tons of them, thousands of them, especially at our deep well. Actually, only at our deep wells. Um, and we published an eco- ecological paper uh, in 2005 or 2006. And all these paleontologists called us up and said, where did you get those snails? <laughs> They're extinct. They look a lot like these fossils. <laughs> wow. Excited. Yeah, so um, we since did um, the species description and the molecular work where I calibrated a molecular clock to see if these guys are true living fossils, if, if their species are any hundreds of millions of years old, or if they just represent the lineage that is of just like this fossil. And so there's a Cretaceous fossil called Atresius loratus. It's about 130 million years old, and it's actually from a seep. And um, it looks just like them. It's pretty remarkable. You're like, you hold up the picture of the fossil next to the picture of the living snail, and you're like, yeah, that's, that's that guy. But, you know, mollusks are... Uh, mollusks? can look a lot alike and be very different. <laughs> right. There's so much work that has to be done further beyond that. Right. So really, these guys are relatively young species. They're probably about 35 million years old. And they're, um, so they're not, they're actual, they're not the, the same guy that lived on the seep, but they're certainly representatives of that lineage. But the osteovora pick up the bits of bone that are down in the sediment and eat them. And they have these little stones in their guts. So it's like almost maybe like a crop uses a gizzard to grind down the bone and then and then eat it and then digest it. Whereas the gaffredier actually sit up on top of the bones and scrape little bits off. Their their radula, which is kind of like a, t- a snail's um, throat tongue thing slash gizzard. Um, it's actually really ground down on the on the gaffredier compared to the osteovora. Osteovora looks like it just uses the radula to pick up the little shards of bone. So really cool. So we actually have two. You asked me earlier about what things are actually just whale things, and it looks like these, although these things will eat other kinds of bones, obviously a whale is probably the best meat market there is for... Best food, nutritional source, I guess. Yeah, yeah, longest longest term thing anyways. Wow. Well, Shannon, we need to take a quick, short break, so please stay on the line. For those of you tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and I've been talking with Shannon Johnson from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and we're talking about the whale fall community. When a whale dies, falls to the seafloor, an amazing world takes over the whale, decomposing it. So we've been talking about some fascinating species. We're going to take a quick musical break, and we'll be back in a little bit. You're tuned to KWMR 90.5 Point Ray Station and 89.9 Polinus. Welcome back. This is Jennifer Stuck. You're listening to Ocean Currents. Today, I have Shannon Johnson on the line from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and we're 
diving into the deep sea ecology of whale fall communities. What happens to a giant whale when it dies and falls to the seafloor? There's an amazing amount of activity happening in the decomposition of this whale. And Shannon's been describing some amazing worms, the Osidax worms, and also this ancient snail that seems like a relative of something they thought was extinct. So Shannon, you're back live on the air. Thanks for sticking with us. No problem. So I, I wanted to go back to that snail thing. You were talking about this snail. It's, it's a relative of, or they think it's a relative of this one they thought was extinct, which really pr- puts some interesting questions in mind of animals that are potentially still around from way back in the ancient time uh, when dinosaurs roamed the planet. And what other questions did that bring up in terms of these communities and some of the evolutionary stories they might be able to tell through researching these species? That's a great question. And, you know, when when everybody first started working on vents, it, it was thought that these things are, this is where life began and that all these things were ancient fossils. In fact, um, we have, like, archaeogastropods and all sorts of these families and names of animals from the deep sea, and that's kind of a remnant of this thinking. And it turns out most stuff in the deep sea is quite young. And it, it, we try to, you know, especially with the snails, with the ruby spiras, the the group that they're associated with are this is this group called the Abyssochrysidae. And um, the, the oldest members are probably some of the shallowest members. Um, and that's the oldest group we can push back. Most everything in the deep sea turns out is quite fragile. And there was the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. Um, is this, it was, what, 55 million years ago? And that event was associated with a huge anoxic event. And so it's very, very hard to find anything from the deep sea that um, that extends before that event. And so um, life may have begun in the deep sea via chemosynthesis, but certainly the things living there now are not ancient at all and are much younger than shallow water things. I see. Very interesting. That just recently came up. I was attending the Ocean Acidification Conference in Monterey, and it sounded like a massive... There was a massive die-off with ocean acidification and that we're headed towards levels that are much higher than that event that really wiped out um, a good amount of biodiversity on our planet. So it's interesting in thinking about these massive events and what happens and then the changes that occur and what's around still. And some of it we don't even know in the deep sea. We're just discovering. It's amazing. Yeah, and I mean, people thought for so long that the deep sea was relatively protected because it is so far removed from shallow water. And But it, the physical constants down there, like the temperature and the oxygen and the salinity, all the physical constants are very uniform and very protected. And even at hydrothermal vents, though, I'm working on um, some members of the same group that the snails are from in the Bissacrisidae. They live essentially in hot acid, right? And But the only thing that they're really sensitive to is oxygen levels. The minute the oxygen levels drop, they're out of there. They're not there. You don't find them. But they can live in hot acid. <laughs> you know, here I was thinking, oh, these guys are, are going to be our bright, shining mm. example with climate change. These guys will be okay, but oxygen is the limiting factor. Nothing's going to do too well without the oxygen. 
Right. Well, actually, I do want to step back and ask a big picture question with climate change and changing planet everywhere, sea surface temperatures, um, air temperatures, everything. What what are some of the impacts that are being thought of for the deep sea environment? Because ultimately, things in the deep sea are influenced by the surface. So what are some of the deep sea impacts that we might be seeing or changes, I should say? Well, I mean, it's it, this is definitely a little bit out of my uh, <laughs> my realm, but I mean, everything we've seen so far is really fragile, and that's one thing that we've noticed a lot is that um, big changes are not good at all in the deep sea. I mean, a shallow water animal like a mussel, middleist, think about middleist for a minute. It, it can see a forty degree temperature range in a day. It can see huge changes in salinity. You know, if it gets a little rainwater on them, they're going to be okay. They deal with hot. They deal with cold. They can do starvation. Um, the deep sea animals aren't. They don't. They're not. They don't get to experience those things, and so they have not adapted. And they're also relatively young, so they haven't had time to adapt to these severe changes. So I have no idea how these things will react to climate change, but um, some researchers in Ambari have been doing some work and looking at high CO2 conditions on animals, and nothing does well at all, and except for the mobile things that can swim away from the experiment. So, oh. yeah, the, the guys that we work on that are fixed to the bottom are, are not, not going to be in their happy place. Mm. And, but definitely, the and we, li- we work on things that live at such a different range of, I mean, you go from really hot hydrothermal vents, vents can go up to 300 degrees Celsius and melting, literally melting the minerals around them into the water to cold seeps where, you know, you see very little change and they can be very long-term stable environments compared to the vents. So we, we work on a really big, broad range of animals, but definitely the limiting factor for everything is if the oxygen is too low, they won't live. Okay, that's interesting. So also, the other thing that I was reading, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, but it seems that the species makeup at each of these communities is similar, and they're kind of far spread out as well in terms of the planet. And is the thought that the whale fall communities are somewhat of a stepping stone, perhaps, for the travel of these species around to these different environments, since they really only go to these specific environments? Well, that was a really... Uh, that was a really interesting hypothesis people brought up a while ago, and it was kind of a neat idea that, that these... Because, yeah, you're right. They're, I mean, especially the vents are vents can be separated from hundreds to thousands of kilometers and have huge ridges in between them. And same with the seeps. And the seeps are even more randomly distributed than vents. I mean, vent animals can ride these along axis currents and kind of go to the next vent and then go to the next vent. And we have evidence from their genetics that they do do this. And the seep animals, um, we're just starting to really get into the population genetics of the seeps and trying to understand how they move around. But there's very few links of animals between vent seeps and whale falls and wood. Um, there's more links between wood and whale falls, wood animals and whale falls, uh, I think I found one vent limpet ever called Lepidodrillus ovalis, and um, people used to call these limpets uh, vent endemic, meaning they only live on vents. And we found one individual on a piece of, on a wh- on a whale all the way up in Monterey, which was really weird. Wow! <laughs> I don't know what he was doing there, but he was there. Um, 
But uh, there are some clams, um, some vesicamide clams that can live on um, a late-stage whale fall. And we actually found a ton of these clams um, at the low-oxygen whale fall down in Southern California. And we're just starting to see them show up at the Monterey whale falls now that they've been down for a number of years and are basically they're brown spots in the mud for most part in Monterey. And now the clams have come in because it's reached the fourth stage of um, what the whale fall ecologists have kind of called the sulfophilic stage where the bacteria are now kind of um, producing all this sulfur and feeding and turning it into essentially a seep. Um, and so we are starting to see this, the clams show up in Monterey. But those are very few. Those are the and those are the and I think there's been one worm ever, one vestimentiferin, which are seep and and vent worms that has shown up at a whale fall. And so that's kind of a sink. Like one guy landed there and decided, oh maybe, and not going to make it. <laughs> wow. So it, there isn't a whole lot of support for that hypothesis, but it's kind of a neat idea. But uh, we haven't seen a lot of um, true data supporting that idea. Mm-hmm. So in terms of everything we've talked about today and some of the other stuff as well regarding the whale fall communities um, from maybe some more of the biologist perspective, but what are the big questions that this information about these de- decomposition stages and, and types of species, what does that help inform in terms of some bigger questions? You were mentioning some evolutionary work. Is there, are there other pieces of this puzzle that these communities can help us solve? Well, I mean, we're all, our, main, our lab's main focus is really on evolutionary questions and how these things are getting where they're going and um, how old they are, what, how did they evolve to do this crazy life history. Um, so, and, and this is where we get kind of hand-wavy, where you try to calibrate molecular clocks and it's like you use genes and fossils and, and different rates and try to guess how old these things might be, but it's definitely hand-waving. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, it's fun to tell a story that way. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, it's good to identify the characters in the story. Exactly, exactly. And so, like, for big picture for the osidacs, I mean, there's two different rates we use. There's one based on deep-sea animals, and there's one based on worms. If we use the one based on, I think it's worms. Um, if we use the one based on worms, they're around 35 million years old. Um, but if we use the deep-sea one, uh, the group is, um, much older, and it's back back in 75, 80 million years old. And so the 30 million years old sounds satisfying because that's about how long whales have been around. The 75 one is a little tougher because there's a big gap of time when these guys weren't able to live on any large mammals after the um, all the dinosaurs went away 65 million years ago. There's a big their big time frame, um, but they do live on fish and birds and things that were that did make it through. So that's we don't know. That's hand waving. Sort of hi- a very highly adaptable animal, it sounds. Right, right, yeah. They'll live on anything. So maybe mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't know, but we can say maybe. <laughs> so you've got these whale falls that, that uh, or whales you've dragged to a site to study them, and once they're completely decomposed 
and gone, then what's next? Are, are there going to be future questions about the make, makeup of species, bringing in more mammals, or what's the next steps for this research community, and at least in Monterey? Well, our group is kind of wrapping up the work we've done on this, doing a whole lot of species descriptions and thinking more about big picture stuff like what you're talking about. Um, other groups are also working on, like, um, Sigrid and Greg just published the paper on the acid, and um, there's a group in England looking at fossils. They're looking for osidax traces in fossils, which is really cool. They're thin-sectioning these bones, and they're able to put back together what would look like a root system of an osidax in really old bones. Um, so it's kind of neat because just this initial discovery has spawned all this research from these people all over the world looking at these worms. And there's a group in Japan at Jamstech working sinking whales, and they have a couple new species, but they also, which is really interesting, they have some of the species same as in the Monterey Bay. Unfortunately, we have a few, only a few individuals of what they have many of, and they have a few of what we have many of. So for doing population genetics across the ocean, unfortunately, it's not going to work. But it's really amazing because there are very few trans-Pacific species in the ocean. There's a couple clams and now these worms. doesn't well, happen very often. Especially traveling on the seafloor, I can imagine. That's a pretty hard place to travel across. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, all this work has been, and there's um, people in Sweden doing work on this, on whales, on all, all these bone worms, too. So it's, there's people all over the world doing stuff with the Osidax now, which is really neat. And, but we're, we're kind of wrapping it up. Wow, <laughs> fantastic. We've done the easy part. <laughs> yeah, well, also... For everybody else to answer the hard questions. <laughs> Well, the, and those are interesting questions to follow up on. I did see a lot of other names of biologists that are involved in the work, um, Hawaii, uh, University of Hawaii, yeah. and um, also down in San Diego. Is there a web link or a website that you can direct listeners to to see some of the video footage from these cruises of investigating these whale habitats? That's one of the beauties of Mbari is you have these fantastic remotely operated vehicles and fantastic video footage. And I imagine there's a link online. Yes, there's a link on our website. You go to mbari.org. Um, it's mbari.org. You can see all kinds of stuff, and they're always putting up new cool video clips, and we should have some new stuff coming up off our most recent cruise, too. Okay, and you can also Google mbari plus whale fall. Yeah. And get some video. Because I, I did see a really nice video. It was like three or four minutes describing the, the community changing from the flesh all the way down to the worms. And it was beautiful video footage. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. The video really, it's, I'm, I have to say, talking on radio is hard because usually I get to talk in front of big, beautiful pictures of flowing worms in the currents. And <laughs> well, Shannon, thank you so much again for spending the day talking about this community and it's really fascinating to hear about worms, and we don't talk about worms all that much. They're not the biggest megafauna compared to the whales and the sharks and the seabirds, but obviously they have an incredible ecological role, and it's really fascinating, the evolutionary work that's, that's going on in the genetics. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for talking about worms. <laughs> Only on ocean currents do you hear about worms. Awesome. All right, Shannon, thanks so much. Have a great afternoon. Thanks, you too. 
We have just been talking with Shannon Johnson from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and we've been talking about the interesting ecology at the whale fall community when a, a large whale dies and is on the seafloor. An amazing group of animals comes in to decompose it, and the Ambari group, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, has been studying some of the genetics of these animals and comparing them to other worms at other interesting sites on the deep sea floor, like at cold seeps and at hot deep sea vents. Fascinating stuff. The deep sea is just absolutely mind-blowing. It's like looking into outer space. Just a few follow-up things regarding the deep sea whale fall community. Some other facts that I found about the relevance of this research is looking at how deep sea animals respond to point source enrichment and for predicting the effects of potential relocation of sewage sludge or disposing of other organic rich wastes on the, at the seafloor, at the deep seafloor. So those are some other ways that uh, learning about these environments helps us to think about ways we might be relying on these environments to help with our waste products on land here. And another really interesting thing, and I don't, I didn't get a ton of information on this, but a San Diego biotech company is working with one of the biologists to uh, look at developing a cold water detergent that contains an enzyme found in bacteria growing on whale bones. And such a detergent may have the potential to yield substantial energy savings on a national scale. So that's another interesting aspect of learning about the biodiversity of the species on this planet is there are some things that really can help us. And this could be an amazing invention with that enzyme. So fascinating stuff. I want to just say thanks for tuning in today to Ocean Currents. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month, part of the West Marin Matters series, where every Monday at 1 you can tune into KWMR to learn about a topic of environmental focus. Ocean Currents has a podcast. You can go to iTunes and search for Ocean Currents or go to the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary website, Cordell Bank, C-O-R-D-E-L-L Bank, Dot .noaa.gov to get past episodes. And I love hearing from listeners. If you have any feedback about the program, do you have any questions or great stories to share about the ocean, please send me an email and I'll try to cover it on the next show. My email is jennifer.stock, S-T-O-C-K at N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. Thanks again for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.